Uh, tonight we have uh, a friend of Scum's, Justin McRoberts. Uh, some of you may have uh, heard him before. And by before, I mean way before. I mean, Justin's been around longer than I have. I think Mike and Mary are the only people around anymore that are, have been around longer than Justin. Um, Justin's an old friend of ours, and he comes all the time. He's a musician, and he's a, an author. Um, and I've got one of his books, and any any of his books, you know, when you pick up a book, you kind of flip, you know, you flip through it, and then you're like, like that'll tell you something. <laughs> you know, like blah. That doesn't help anybody unless it's one of Justin's books. If you actually go through and do that with one of Justin's books, you're like, oh, oh wait a minute, what? It's way more than a book. It's it's visual. It is words. It is pictures. It is images. Um, Justin's an artist, uh, and he creates just as God has called him to create, as he's called all of us to create. Uh, it's a big deal that we get to have him, um, and, and I mean literally, uh, because he, he asked Mike, and then Mike deferred to me, which is still weird. I'm still getting used to that. But I was like, oh, yeah, totally, Justin, you should come. You should come. I was like, uh, wait, how much is this going to be? And he said a number, and it was more than we normally have. <laughs> and he was willing to do it for a really big deal. So he wants to be here because he loves scum. Uh, Justin is is a treat for us, uh, and he has things for you. Um, I prayed for low-hanging grace uh, before the service tonight, and I think it's going to be here. So... Look to have it. Look to grab it. Um, I'm going to pray, and then, yeah. Oh, wait. Uh, and I, I should uh, mention kids. Uh, zero to four, uh, go upstairs. And, uh, wait, no, zero to three upstairs, four to seven downstairs. I'm still getting used to that. So I'm going to pray, and then Justin's going to come up, all right? All right, God. Um, this is sweet. I'm excited. Um, I like the way that Justin thinks. I like the way... I'm proud that he's in my family um, because I'm refreshed by the things that he understands and the way that you talk to him and the way he says the things that you say to him. I pray that we all enjoy it. I pray that we all love it. I pray that we're smarter, that we look forward to this next week with uh, the things that he puts in our pockets. pray most that you're pleased, that you like this, that you think this is a good time. Um, pray all of these things in your son's name because I hope that there you will. Amen. Hi. Oh, God. Yeah, it's always dangerous to clap before someone does something because you might want to take that back <clears throat> like right at the beginning. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about the practice of prayer tonight. Last time I was here, I talked about the practice of community. I'm going to use the word practice a lot. I'm going to use the word practice a lot again tonight. So it's really going to be a lot of practice, but specifically the practice of prayer. And I want to give kind of a heads up going in, and specifically this, that when I'm talking about the practice of prayer, I'm not coming to you as someone who has this on lock or someone for whom like prayer is even like a natural thing. I am not a natural devotionalist. Some of my friends are natural devotionalists. They're just sort of like, that's a thing they do. They get quiet. They can get quiet. They get silent. They sit in the lotus position, and they're just happy as clams. I, it's a battle. It's a struggle. It's never not been a struggle. Like the practice of prayer, it's like I have to put myself in that position regularly. It's just not a natural thing for me. So I'm coming to you as someone 
who for whom prayer is not I don't even say not easy. It's like it's not even oftentimes a labor of love. Sometimes it's just flat out a labor. Um, so, and I'm also going to assume a couple of things. Here's some assumptions I'm making. One, that for some of you at least, even the concept of the, like as, as soon as I say prayer, one, this thing comes up in you even at the sort of low level, like low level three sort of headache type thing. Like oh crap. Because as a, if, if you know if you belong to a Christian community, if you've been around the Christian world at all. That you're a Christian, you pray. And it's this sort of automatic, like, of course you do. <laughs> but for a lot of us, again, including me, there is no of course. Because the more I come to it and the longer I'm around, the more I feel like I'm not getting this right. And then there's this sort of weird sort of guilt-shame gap. Where, like, I don't really want to talk about the fact that I'm not sure about this. Or, let's say like this, I'm not sure this works. And because I'm not sure this works, and I don't know what exactly I'm supposed to be expecting, and I don't want to be one more congressman, like, sending out prayers uh, to people who have been victims of gun violence and then, like, making prayer mean absolutely nothing, then we end up sort of at a distance from prayer. So I'm assuming that you might be in a position like me who's like, I'm not even sure what this thing is. So um, go to, if you go to the next slide, here's where I'm actually – I'm, I'm going to sort of, like – this is where I'm going to end, so I'm telling you how this thing ends to some degree. So if you want to leave right now because you have stuff to do, this is where I go. Um, there's a lot written in, in the biblical text and certainly a lot written after that about the practice of prayer. I'm going to suggest tonight that this is sort of the essence of the practice of prayer, whether you're part of the Christian tradition or any religious tradition. I'm going to suggest that this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. At the very beginning of the ministry life of Jesus, not the life of Jesus, but like the point, the, the sort of the stories we tell about the life of Jesus, the sort of three to three and a half year period in which he did all this stuff. This moment happens. <clears throat> He's baptized by a person named John, who's a prophet, and, it, and comes out of the water. And, and the description of it is this, that here's this voice. And here's that from God the Father, here's, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I'll dig in specifically as to why I think this is the essence of prayer, but I, I think this is like the whole kit and caboodle. I think like when it comes to the practice of prayer, this phrase right here and the context in which it takes place, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. I think we begin there, we stay there, and we end there when it comes to prayer. I don't think we ever graduate from this place. And when we think, when I think that I graduate, when I think of this as a starting place, or I think of this as a place at which I finally arrive, I lose myself and I start treating prayer as something that it is not. I think I start here, I think I stay here, I think I end here. So, um, if you go to the next slide, thank you, by the way, brother. So, when I, when I, this is, when I, when I teach on anything, I like to Google whatever it is that I'm teaching to find out what the Google thinks about what I'm teaching. And when I type into the Google the word prayer, this is the crap I get. And, um, and I learned some stuff about the practice of prayer from these images, that, uh, specifically about my prayer life, that I didn't know before, specifically that I've been praying in the wrong time of day. Uh, <laughs> it's a sunset thing. Had no idea. Fool that I am that I would pray midday. So also, I don't know if you can tell, but I, I didn't know you could get a Bible with, like, the glory of God attached. It comes with the Bible. Like, it's, my Bible is, like, it's ink, it's paper. I got it at freaking Barnes & Noble when these people used to buy books. And apparently for, like, 65 bucks, you can get the leather-bound edition with the glory of the Lord in it. And I'm joking for the most part. Like, I'm cracking wise. And yet, and this is the thing about humor, Right? It's the kind of the gateway of the truth. So, as much as I can poke at this and poke at these images and pretend that it's funny, 
reality is, in my life, something in the back of my head, and this is a cultural thing, but I also think it's sort of a psychosomatic thing, uh, Something in the back of my head tells me if, if I'm not, if my prayer life, if my spiritual life in general, if my prayer life doesn't feel like this looks, at least occasionally, something is amiss. That if I'm not having experiences that are sort of like this, in some way, shape, or form, then something is not right. If I go weeks, months, maybe even years without having that sense of like, oh, okay, it's all coming together. If I'm not having these high point moments in my practice of prayer, there's something wrong with my soul, something wrong with my prayer life. So I can poke fun at this, but these images don't show up on Google just because. I think this is an expectation that a lot of us have. Now, I'm not saying that experiences and spiritual experiences are bad things. If you have experiences, great. Here's what I want to say. I don't want an experience of someone. I want the person themselves. So if you go to a therapist and you're hung up and you're jammed up in some relationship, one of the things a good therapist will do is instead of letting you talk about that other person, they'll ask you about your experience of that other person. Anybody with me? Anybody go see a therapist besides myself? Am I the only nut? Okay, thanks. So what my therapist will do is if I'm jammed up on someone, she will ask me. She will tell me how you're experiencing that. Because she doesn't want me to talk about them because my experience of them is not the person themselves. Can I say that again one more time? My experience of someone is not the person themselves. If we're going to do this thing where we're going to talk about God, the divine, as a person, can we please, for crap's sake, not make our experience of God, God itself? Because then we're chasing us. Then I'm chasing my emotions, and I'm not actually pursuing anything outside myself. Then I'm not being formed by anything outside me. I'm projecting my emotional needs onto some image, some expectation of the divine. Everybody with me? I don't want an experience of God. If I want something, I want God, regardless of the experience. Um, early memory of prayer. If you go to the next image. So, I, I didn't grow up religious at all. My mom grew up Catholic. She now practices faith as a Catholic. But for a bunch of years, because my dad was not into religion, um, for many years, my whole childhood for the most part, uh, she put her faith on the back burner but she had the artifacts of her religious practice, like laying around the house, <laughs> house, which is like if, the, if there's a if there's a metaphor for American evangelical Christianity, it's that. It's like we're not really practicing this anymore, but we kind of have the artifacts laying around. So I, I don't know what the impetus was for this moment, but my mom had the statue of Jesus, this porcelain statue of Jesus, looked like that, in her bedroom, and I was like six or seven at the time of the story, and I took I took this porcelain statue of Jesus. And I went to my room, and I set it on the edge of my bed, and I knelt. Now, again, like, I'm not a religious kid, didn't go to church, but, like, by osmosis, as, an, like, a Caucasian American, like, I knew something about prayer. Don't know where it came from. It was just some, just kind of, it's, it's in the soup. So, I'm kneeling by my bed, and my mom fills in the gaps in all this story. I remember bits and pieces of this. And, and, and I clasped my hands together, because this is what you do, and then I leaned against the bed to pray. And every time I leaned against the bed to pray, the statue would fall over, and I'd have to pick it back up, and then I would lean against, and then it would fall over, and then I would have to gunk, and then I would have to, and then to gunk. And that's like the whole memory. That's it. I, I, like, I never got around to the actual business of praying, because I couldn't get set up correctly. Let me say that again. I never got around to the actual business of praying, because I couldn't get set up correctly. Anybody rhyme with that? What I was doing is a thing I do, and a thing I think we have a tendency to do with important stuff in general, is I was confusing and conflating the essence of a thing with the mechanics of a thing. 
And we do this on the regular with really important stuff. We confuse the mechanics of justice with the essence of justice, and therefore we don't practice it at all. We confuse the, 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 the essence of community with the practice of community, and we become manipulative. We confuse the essence of romance with the practice of with the, with the mechanics of romance, and we end up hurting one another. I confuse and conflate the essence of prayer with the mechanics. It's not to say the mechanics don't matter. They do. But the essence of prayer has to be... That's the framework. Otherwise, I'm just going through the motions, and there's no me in it. So what I needed someone to tell me really early on about about prayer, about all kinds of stuff, is this very freeing uh, phrase. If you go to the next room, you're not going to get it wrong. See, if it's an important thing, like the, all the list of things I just gave you, and, and I, I don't want to do it poorly, because who, who wants to do an important thing poorly? I don't want to do an important thing poorly. So if I think I'm not going to get it right, my tendency is to not do it at all. I'd rather not do it at all than do it wrong. So... I have oftentimes just kind of found myself at arm's length from the practice of prayer because I don't want to blow it. I needed someone to tell me a long time ago, you're not going to get... The prayer's not like math, which sucks. Math sucks. Because there's a problem and there's a singular solution. And that's it. And if you get that wrong, you're wrong. Prayer is like swimming, right? Like, if you are in the water and you are not drowning, you are swimming. But you might suck at that, and that's fine. If you're, you're alive, you are swimming. You're in the water, there's, and then you, which isn't to say you can't get better. It's not to say, like, if you can improve, you can grow in something. But here's a little kind of a, this weird American narrative that we insert into our Christianity. Just because you can grow at something doesn't mean you were blowing it to begin with. Can someone give me an amen? Like, I hate this thing where it's like, oh, and my life was terrible, and then insert Jesus, and we're all good. That's never the story. It's never that everything was freaking wrong with your life and then suddenly everything was okay. You've never been blowing your whole life. Ever. You've never been blowing your whole life. And those narratives that kind of tell us that, like, that's neat for the movie, but that doesn't really tell a human story. So just because you can grow in a discipline doesn't mean you were getting it wrong. I'm, this is freeing for me. You're not going to get it wrong. So um, here's a story that kind of gets that from a different doorway. So my, my son, if you go to the next frame... Uh, just that one. That, don't go to the next one yet. So, my son, who is, uh, he's seven now, um, and in 2014, he was uh, younger. So, uh, math. So, he comes to me and he says, Dad, I want, I want to do Halloween this year. I love Halloween. I'm a huge Halloween fan. So, I was like, fired up, ready to go. What are you going to do? What are you, what, what are you thinking? He said, Dad, I, I want to be a superhero. Now I'm stoked. I said, so, what, are you thinking, you know, like, The Flash, Batman, some, something in the DC universe? He said, no, I don't want to be the Batman or The Flash. I said, son, listen, listen to me closely. <laughs> you cannot be Superman, or you cannot live in this house. And uh, so we had a conversation about it. And he said, no, Dad, I, uh, my son's name is Asa Jonathan McRoberts. He said, no, Dad, I want to be Super Asa. Okay. Super Asa. All right, wh- what does is, what is Super Asa wear? So he goes into his closet. And I can hear him rummings around, and, then he, and he comes out, and he's got this, he's got, he's got his little striped socks on, and his little pajamas tucked into his striped socks. He's got his long sleeve blue shirt on and a cape, which I did not know, this is true, I did not know he had a cape, and he came out with a cape on, and a little crown that his auntie Jasmine made. I was like, you have a cape? He's like, I'm three and a half, we come with capes. So he comes out with a cape, and he's like, I need mom to take an, tape an S to my chest. I'm like, this is going to be great. Like, he gets it, this is going to be super fun. 
Halloween night, we go out and we're doing the thing, and he's starting to pick up, and like, I'm going to get a crap ton of candy. This is the jam. Love this. He's fired up. Then he gets really excited, and he sees the big kids. And, he's, and the big kids are kind of why he wants to do Halloween to begin with, because he saw the big kids doing it. He said, Dad, can I go with the big kids? And I know some of the kids in the neighborhood, and so I was like, yeah, you know, if you can keep up, then, then go. So he takes off around the corner, and he's like, those little Crocs on, because superheroes. And, uh, I'm saying like three to five minutes later, he comes walking back around the corner. Big old tear, big poopy, sad lip that like three and a half year olds only have that sad face. They're like, it's like, buddy, what happened? He said, one of the big kids told me I can't be super Asa. He said, I have to pick a real superhero. I, I can't just make it up. So now I've got one of those like dad dilemmas. Like how do I navigate this moment without like Injuring someone else's child. And I knelt down on the ground. And I said, buddy, um, those big kids, they look pretty great, huh? He went, yes. I said, that, that Flash costume was dope. He went, yes, it is dope. I said, here's the thing about those kids in those costumes. Like, they got those ideas from the comics or from a TV show or from a movie. And then they went to the store and they bought those costumes, probably from like a Walmart or some terrible place like that. He went, yeah. I said, buddy, you invented your own superhero. And then you designed your own outfit. I think you look great. I I think you're pretty special. He went, yeah. I said, yeah. You want to get some candy? He went, yes. I said, you want to get more candy than all those big kids combined? Yes. And that's how we exacted our vengeance. Which is not the point. Vengeance is not the point of the story. It is, of course, a key element. Kneeling down, by the way, that night was a little bit difficult because I was actually wearing this, if you go to the next image, um, which is a costume I've been wearing for 15 years uh, straight at that point. And there's my son. If I'm honest with myself, and I try to be, my life in general, but surely my spiritual and religious life, looks a whole lot more like my son's Halloween costume than it does anything else. Like, I, it's pretty much cobbled together with what I've got laying around. I'm making up pretty much most of it as I go along. And insofar as the Christian tradition, like, refers to God as a father, like, can you honestly imagine, like, this good-hearted father in the sky being like, I'm sorry, I can't hear you over the sound of those socks. Like, is that happening? Or am I received by the one who makes me or made me because I belong to the one who makes me and made me? Insofar as we refer to God as a father, can we get on the level of this? Is the world not full of sons who do not talk to their dads? Full. So why would a good-hearted God put anything between kids and himself that does not need to be there? Here's a story I don't tell everywhere. One of my favorite prayers ever, ever. A guy named Mick, Mick Leonardi. Mick Leonardi showed up at my house, like, I would say, like, six, seven times a month. He would just show up, usually drunk. His life was in shambles. Just, you know, but it was never, like, in a place where he was willing to change. He just wanted to vent. Okay. And this night, it was night, it was like 2.33 o'clock in the morning. Mick showed up, and he said, I'm ready to change. i got to do it. This time he hadn't been drinking. He was like, I get it. It's time to make move. All right, dude. What do you want to do? Because I feel like I should pray about it. I said, all right. And this brother knelt in the middle of my room. And there, there were like F-bombs. 
like for the like the first paragraph of this prayer, which is like a seven minute prayer, he cussed more than like a, like a Tarantino film, and it was just like ripping off all these just because he, he's just talking about his life. And if there's something or anything true about God, there's just got to be something that doesn't say, "Ooh, gosh, I wish he wouldn't have said it like that," right? He's just not hung up on the words you're using. Any good friend in yours is not concerned with the words you're using if you're trying to get your heart across. So the following year, if you go to the next image, my son instead uh, decided to be the Flash, and I wore that same outfit again. And that's my wife in a Green Bay Packers outfit, which is, has nothing to do with the Packers or football because she doesn't really like football or the Packers. She found that cheese cozy, and she needed an outfit to go with the accessory. <laughs> But this year, my son, this, this year in the picture, my son decided to step into someone else's tradition, someone else's design, someone else's expression. And there's just no shame in the game of someone else's words becoming your own because, and you know this, sometimes the words in your own psychology are not enough for what's going on in your own psychology. Can I get an amen? Like sometimes what you have to say about what's going on in you just does not land the plane. And so that song becomes like your jam for the month. Like, thank God she wrote this song, because I don't know who I would be if she hadn't written these lyrics, right? Someone else's words. When I started this whole religious journey, my young life leader, uh, like a youth group kind of person, handed me literally this book. And it's a little prayer guide. This is the one he gave me. And most days, if I'm going to like attempt prayer at all, if I don't have this, I am freaking lost in the tall grass. I don't know where to start. I don't know how to get moving. Like I just, I, I need someone else's words. I talk all the time, all the time. I talk professionally, and then I talk personally. I talk to myself. I'm an only child. It's all the time. So I get sick of my own words. Legitimately, get sick of my own words. And so when it comes to actually navigating and like excavating what's going on in me, I'm not sufficient. Someone else often is. There's just no shame in the game of borrowing on someone else's words. And then there's this. Sometimes words in general just aren't enough. Words are one way we do things. And if we do anything poorly in Western Christianity, is we just kind of get hung up on the one methodology and just stick it out until it dies. Sometimes words don't cut it. So if you go to the next image, here are these two... Oh, by the way, this was the following year. My son, my son finally talked me into not wearing the duct tape outfit. A, because he really wanted me to be the Batman, uh, and B, because it smells. So, uh, 15 years in that sucker, it was ripe. Um, next image, uh, these two images, a couple of stories. One more image, go ahead. Uh, on your left um, uh, is an image by a good friend of mine. Uh, 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 um, it's a piece by a good friend of mine named Dylan Mortimer. On the right uh, is a painting by Rembrandt, one of my favorite pieces of Rembrandt's. And it's a piece called The Prodigal Son. So, two quick stories about uh, visuals and the practice of prayer. The one about the Rembrandt piece. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Henry Nowen. If you've read any Henry Nowen, you know he's a poignant, like, powerful mind. He's a person of words. He was a retreat leader. He was teaching at Harvard. And he got to, without getting into all the details, he got to this point in his personal life in which, like, the Christianity around him was insufficient for helping him navigate. Uh, and because the Christianity around him was insufficient, like the words he'd been trained in with regards to the practice of prayer just were not sufficient. And he traveled to the place, this Rembrandt piece set, because he had, he had like one of those little cards with a piece in it. You've, maybe you have one of those in a bookmark, or like you like this painting. There's something very different between like having that and sitting in front of an actual painting. So he traveled to the place this painting actually hangs, and he sat in front of this painting for like three days off and on. 
And he just let this painting unpack him. And you've been there when some visual work, it's like a 30-second commercial, or it's that image you've got sitting on your desktop that you just kind of crack open every once in a while that kind of gets into your soul in a way that nothing else can. And you can't always identify what it is that it's doing, but it's definitely doing something to you. Visuals unpack us in a way that like, maybe we're a little bit less in control of, sort of the way poetry does. You get read by the piece more than you read the piece. Can I get an amen? So over the course of three days, he just took notes. And then he started writing after that and writing about like, what had been unpacked in him by this painting. On the left, Dylan Mortimer. Dylan is a visual artist, clearly, uh, living in Kansas City. He's also a guy who grew up with cystic fibrosis. And if you know anything about CF, the average life expectancy of someone with CF is like 30 to 34 years or so. So when Dylan turned 29, he talked about like his, his religion just fell apart. Like he didn't know how to talk about like his mortality in the context of anything like like the goodness of the world or the goodness of God. Didn't know what to do with it. And let's be honest, like people aren't like you know, you if you you know if you were to flip on Christian radio, which you might, uh, I don't know. No judgment. That might be something you do. If you do that, people aren't writing songs for twenty nine year old kids who are staring their mortality in the face. And there aren't like spiritual books on the Christian bookshelves about being 29 and probably dying in the next few years. Like, there's just no one's writing for this. So he didn't have words in himself. He wasn't being provided any words. So this is what he found himself doing. He would show up in his own studio space, and he was creating these pieces. He would go like six or seven times a week, late at night, because that's when all your junk catches up with you. Can you get it, amen? Like, you can fight it off during the day, and then, mm, 11, 30, 12, 1, like, everything's like, hi, how you doing? Yeah, I was quiet all day. Let's talk now. That's when it happens. So he shows up in his studio night after night after night into the morning, and he starts creating these pieces about suffocating, about mucus. It's about his disease, because that's all he knows right now. It's all he can focus on is his disease and his impending death. Now, this is a really, really, really tame piece from this series. But most of the pieces are they're actually they're ugly. They're disturbing. In fact, some of the pieces, as he created them, he would finish the piece and he would light the thing on fire and just stand there. And they're huge pieces. They're like, some of like the size of the stage. They're just massive. And he would just stand in the middle of the studio and watch the thing burn. And he said, that was my prayer life. He's like, that's all I had. And it was literally me standing in the middle of this big studio space saying, God, what the hell? That's all I've got. And over the course of time, what he said he heard inside him was not some kind of voice that said, hey, it's all going to be okay. Which, by the way, if you ever hear, hey, it's all going to be okay, I'm going to bet that might not be God. But instead, what he started to sense and started to feel was, I'm with you. I'm with you. This sucks. I know this sucks. And I'm with you. It was the visuals. He didn't have words, because who has words for that? So when my buddy Scott Erickson and I started talking about putting together some sort of project, we wanted to combine these elements. If you go to the next image here, uh, this is a, a page from this prayer book that we put together. So the words are mine, and the images are Scott's. May love be stronger in me than the fear of the pain that comes with caring. We wanted to provide someone else's words, a way to have like some kind of 
like handle some sort of like you know verbal oral written handle on like getting it but not so many words that I sort of overwhelm you in your prayer life because it's about you by the way as a side note as a speaker as an author a thing I've come to believe I don't really I don't actually bring content to the table if there's content it's what's happening in your soul I get the privilege of hoping to stir that up and then you get to actually deal with the content which is what's going on in you so part of how we wanted to be responsible to that, it was like simple imagery, simple language, just giving you handles. And we got this message back, or Scott got this message back after putting the book out. This guy wrote about this piece, and I love this story. He said, I, I kept coming back to this page, because there are 40 of these in the book. He said, you know, I kept coming back to this page, and, and, and I thought what it was going on was like this articulation of, of I, I had encased my heart in something hard to protect me from the world. But what I'm realizing now is that what I'm not, I'm not actually afraid of what's around me and being injured. I'm afraid of what's in me and that I'm going to hurt other people. That's a powerful, powerful thing to come to. And he got there by letting this visual unpack it. If you go to the next image, a little bit more straightforward, a kind of a prayer and image combination, is may I learn to make good out of what I'm given rather than only make sense of it. Again, simple, short prayer, just like, let's just kind of kickstart the engine and let you go where you need to go from there. Now, um, let me turn a little bit of a corner here. If you go to the next image, um, I've, I've talked, go to the next image, uh, we can skip that, because I kind of said that already. I've talked a bunch about practice, and here's, here's what I mean when I talk about practice. One of my favorite writers um, is a guy named uh, David Brooks. David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times, written a few books of his own about psychology and, um, he, or, and human behavior. He wrote this piece about baseball, and I'm a baseball fan, so I love the piece in general, but he talked about the way baseball has the human brain hacked. And he said that if he, 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 was like, he was at a Dodgers game, I think it was, it was a bunch of years ago, and, the, and he showed up about an hour ahead of time. If you go to a major league ball game and you get to the game like an hour ahead of time, what do you see on the field? Thank you very much. This is a very simple answer. Um, there'll be simple answers later. You were awarded points. No one else is. Um, so there at second base is a guy playing second base for the Dodgers game, Jeff Kent. Jeff Kent, at the time of the story, is 38 years old. He'd been playing baseball since he was six. Even at 38, Jeff Kent was one of the best defensive, base, uh, defensive infielders in baseball. Just, like, great instincts, arms and legs for days, powerful arm. And there he is, 38 years old, out at second base in ready position. And the coach hits the ball out towards second base. Kent slides over, one knee on the ground, glove on the ground. Hop step, point step, throw to first base, and back to ready position over and over and over again. And like I said, and Brooks says in the essay, like he's been playing baseball since he was six. He makes millions of dollars playing baseball because he's not just good, he's one of the best. Not just one of the best, he's one of the best of the best. And somewhere across town, there's a six-year-old kid running the same drill. So why, at 38 years old, do you practice the same thing over and over? Why do you practice every day? What's the deal about practice? So he says this in the essay, and I love this. He says, so when a baseball comes off a bat in a major league ball game, it's going anywhere between like 85 and 125 miles an hour. Unless you play for the Oakland A's, and that's like a 15 or 17 mile an hour dribbler towards the foul line. If it's not picked up and tagged out, it just goes foul. They're my favorite ball team, and I hate them with everything in me. But if you're standing 90 feet away from this thing and it's going 100 miles an hour, you don't have time to think about what you're going to do. In fact, if you're thinking about what you're going to do, you're going to miss your moment or you're going to hit in the face with a baseball. Life, if you haven't figured this out now, you will, comes at you a lot faster than 100 miles an hour. Can I get an amen? And when it does, I don't want to be in a place to try to have to figure out what it looks like to shift into a posture of prayer. I want to be practiced. 
And this is the point in which, like, we have to be, like, super honest about the way we live. And you don't have to go here with me, but I'm going to say a thing out loud. Most days, you don't feel like you need God. No, you don't. You're going to go home, you've got food in the fridge. You've probably never worried about having food in the fridge. Most of us haven't. A few of us have. And we know what it's like to be like, damn, I don't know if I'm going to get through this. But most Americans, you can go your whole life without having a really an actual felt need for anything remotely like religion. But then that day comes when you do. And when that day comes, may you be a person who has practiced on the days you didn't need it so that you can shift into position. What's it feel like to actually try to talk to God about what's going on in your life? God, I don't want to be trying to figure that out when I need it. I want to be practiced by the time I get there. Here's the other way to think about practice, and then I'll wrap it up here in a second. Um, two quick stories. One is this. You go to the next image. So when, when uh, we... Next, there we go. When we found out that my wife was pregnant with our first kid, um, we looked around a little place. There's a little, little, little condo outside of Oakland, California. And kind of freaked out that we didn't have enough room and didn't have enough space, didn't have enough anything. And so uh, I bought this shelving unit. This is not my shelving unit, by the way. I, this is from the Google. Um, but I bought the shelving unit from Ikea, which is more like buying Legos. And I brought the Legos home. And, uh, but I also, like, I'm not the handiest guy, so I called my buddy Jesse up. I'm like, hey, man, can you come over this weekend and help me put the shelving unit together? Sure. So Jesse comes by on, like, a Sunday. And I blocked out, like, a three-and-a-half-hour time period to put the shelving unit together. We've got, like, a cooler of beers and sandwiches. This is going to be, like, man time, build, build, build shelf, eat sandwich, drink beer. This is the plan. Jesse is done in like 30 minutes. Like he's finished with the whole thing. I'm standing there, literally standing there holding tools he never used. Like, what about the, uh, the blue one? No? Okay. So he's like, hey, man, I'm going to cut. It's like, let's see you later on. And now I'm left with one of these dilemmas, which I think you'll resonate <laughs> with. And it's, it's the dilemma of like, do I or do I not drink his beer? And uh, which is it's very simple. It's not a dilemma at all. It was more of an opportunity. Uh, no, the dilemma actually was this. I set aside three hours. I'm done in 30 minutes. The dilemma was, like, what other productive crap can I jam into the time I have left over? Right? Like, God forbid I give myself space. Something like wisdom got a hold of my heart and said, why don't you just shut up for a minute and enjoy the moment? So I pulled up a chair, and I sat down in the middle of this room that would eventually become my son's room, and I just started... Looking at the shelving unit. And they're like, that looks really good. This is very good. This is much nicer than it would have been had I done it on my own. Thank God for Jesse. No, actually, thank God for Jesse. And thank you for his wife, Andrea, that she lends him out. Like, people get paid to do what Jesse does, and he just comes over and does it for free. And he and Andrea are such great folks. And, and it's not just them. It's the Calgiros and the Rossons and the Bloxhams. And we're surrounded by great people. And we've all... and we're going to be fine. Like, I'm freaking out, and we're going to be fine. We're surrounded by good people, and we live in a house. And I literally sat there for I don't know how long, like, taking in how stupid good my life is. And you're like, when's the last time you did that? Like, when's the last time you actually stopped and let the goodness of, all your, of your life catch up with you? And said, God, thank, thank God my life is this good. Because the other side of that coin is the gospel the world preaches, which is that you are not enough, and you are not enough, and you know you're not enough because you don't have enough. And because you don't have enough, you need the crap we're selling, which will eventually break and you'll need it again. 
constantly punched in the throat with this notion that you are not enough, you don't have it. And there's really, there's the one remedy to that, which is to stop and let the goodness of your life catch up. So certainly, prayer is a way to practice being in a posture of need when you need to be. But it's also, prayer is a, po- is, is a way to posture yourself to receive how good you actually have it so that you can defend yourself against the message around you that says that you still need more crap, that you are not fulfilled, that you are somehow incomplete, and that the friends you have aren't good enough friends. Last bit about practice. Last story. Here's the other way to think about practice that's less about me and you and more about other folks. So I met this kid, his name is Antonio, if you go to the next image, um, in a town outside Guayaquil, and this was at a graduation ceremony, so it's a story that ends well, so you say no. And um, he, uh, he grew up in, in extreme poverty, and like so many kids who grew up in poverty, like he, he's, he lived in a broken household. In this case, his dad was gone, uh, no, his, his mom was gone and his dad was around. His mom skated because his dad had a pretty severe substance abuse issue. And what would happen is his dad would disappear for like a week or two weeks at a time that he would come back and would have spent whatever money he made on whatever it was he was taking. And in his intoxication, whatever, he would be really abusive to mom, to uh, Antonio, and to Antonio's sister. And he said growing up he had this like constant cycle of thought in his mind that someday he was going to be able to end this. And I don't even have to go into the details about like what do you mean by that? Like what do you think you mean by that as a kid? Like how, what do you get, how are you going to end this with your dad? Night after night, when his dad was home, abuse, just horror stories. He said at one point, he was 15, his dad had been gone for like three weeks. His dad came into this hut, and they live in a place that's probably like, it's maybe a quarter the size of of the stage. It's like like maybe four of these squares. It's a tiny little place. His dad walked in, it's pitch black, he can hear and smell his dad come in, he knows exactly what's about to happen, and he can hear, which is always the way it happens, he can hear his sister getting dragged off the ground by his dad. He said, I was 15, he was drunk, I was stronger than he was. So this time it was different. He beat his father to the ground. And he said, I stood there over my dad, and I recognized that this is literally the moment I've been waiting for my entire life, that this is how this ends. And then he says this. He said, and that's when the words of this sponsor of mine jumped into my mind. See, before his mom left, she went to this local church and she signed Antonio up because most of the kids who live around him don't get to go to school, they don't get an education, they don't get food, they don't, they, they don't get to get a, you know, see a doctor when they're sick. But his mom was like, if I'm going to leave, I need to set something up. So she's put him in contact with this church that partners with Compassion. And so three days a week he goes to this church, he goes to school. If he's sick, he needs to see a doctor. If he needs food, he can get food from the church. But the real key thing about this is that what, the way that gets supported is like this. So this is... This is, the kid's name is actually Sadly. <laughs> that needs to be fixed. Um, and this is Anne. They both live in Haiti. And if you sponsor, it costs $1.23 a day to sponsor a kid, which is just not very much money. But it's not the education, per se. It's not the food. It's actually you. Like, if you think about it, like, you're the gift God wants to give the world, right? So what this sponsor did, not just by supporting him in education, he actually got to learn about this kid and... And Antonio, when he was writing these letters, if you've ever talked to kids living in an abusive situation, you don't get the straight story, but you get these clues. And so the sponsor started writing these letters back, month after month. Hey, I'm praying for you, and I'm praying for your father that he would receive mercy. Every single letter. 
Antonio said he would look back over the course of these letters and for like six years, every letter would end, I'm praying for you and I'm praying for your father that he would receive mercy. He said, the words of my sponsor jumped in my mind that somewhere in America there was someone praying for my dad to receive mercy. And so I picked my dad up and I looked him in the face and I see you leave and you do not come back until you're ready to be part of this family. And a year later, Antonio's dad was back in that hut and he was on his knees in the middle of that room. But this time it wasn't because he had been beaten there. This time it was because he was joining his now 16-year-old son hand in hand in a prayer to kick the booze and start his life over. Now, that moment, I'm going to suggest, doesn't happen because of a single moment. That moment happens because mercy is extended over the course of time. The power of the prayers of grandmas aren't you know, powerful because grandmas are magical. Not to say that grandmas are not magical and made of fairy dust. This is also true. But the power of the prayers of grandmas is that they're persistent. Because that stupid crap you've been up to since you were 16 that you have not quit yet, she's still praying about that. And eventually that's going to catch up with you. Just like all forms of love, it's longevity, it's repetition, it's that that doesn't quit. That's what changes the human heart. The power of prayer is actually about the practice. It's that I've been about this for you and on your behalf because you won't be about it on your own for years. And I haven't quit on you even if you've quit on yourself. That's the power of the practice of prayer. It's actually about the practice. So before you leave tonight, I honestly just want you to consider, what's it look like for you to maybe be someone who practices that on behalf of a kid who has no idea how to do that on his or her own? If you do that, I'll just give you a copy of of one of those books that I was talking about that my buddy Scott and I put together. That's kind of the heart of this talk. All in all, like if you go to this last frame here, um, and I don't feel great about this, um, just as an ending, if you go to the next frame. um, This, no, you go, go one more time. This is sort of like, um, like the essence of prayer is not your ability to pray. It is the love of God in Jesus Christ. This is sort of a way, it's a way to land the plane. It's sort of predictable. Like I'm critiquing my own talk right now, right in front of you. Like it's sort of like, a, outside of the fact that it's predictable, it's also, it's just words. Like it's just words. And, I, and I was a company, we prayed music and then we, we talked about images and self-expression. And if there was a way, if only there was a way like, a, like an art form that, com, that like combine these things, right? It would be a more appropriate ending. Like, like self-expression, other people's words, maybe some visuals and some music. And it turns out there is, uh, and we call it uh, karaoke. So this time I'm going to wrap it up. Why don't you stand on your feet? I'm going to go to if you hold, head to the next frame here. You think I'm joking. I'm absolutely not. This is how I'm going to wrap up the evening. Any lack of talent should be made up by volume. Here we go. Real simple, just ooh child, here we go. Ooh child, things are gonna get easier. Come on now. Ooh child, things will get brighter. Little louder. Ooh child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh child, things will get brighter. Someday, get loud now, here we go. Someday, yeah. Put it together and we'll get someday, it done. Someday. Things will be bright. And now you find that harmony, go for it. Shoot the harmony, go for it. Ooh, 
you got it. I hear you. I hear you. Things to be you bring it down hard like Someday That was pathetic Try it again Someday Someday Not too bad Someday 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 Alright Now if you got nothing else This you can do It's just a bunch of la la Do this again La 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 Hold it, hold it, hold it. La 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 la. If you miss it the first time, you get it again right here. La 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 la. La 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 la. Give it, give yourselves a big round of applause. You can chill out of there. Clap for you. Now, I hope, I hope right now, in your mind, is the phrase, "What the hell was that?" And if that's the case, I've done my job. Let me tell you exactly what that is. Because everything I do is intentional. Here's what I'm doing. Nobody shows up to karaoke to nail it, right? Well, there's like the one guy. <laughs> You're like, bro, can we let Sinatra be Sinatra? No, you go to karaoke, you roll in with your crew, and getting the words right is not the point. Getting the notes right is not the point. Joy is the point. That's the goal. I want to suggest... That any and every time you show up in prayer, if there is something true to be said of God, is that you are received in joy every time. And I want that to free us to practice prayer. To figure out, like, what works right now? And maybe if you're not connecting, it's because the thing you're doing doesn't work. Because you don't pray in your 30s the way you did in your 20s. You don't pray as a parent the way you did before you had kids. You change. Your practice has to change. So may we be people who practice prayer because our souls need it, but also because the people around us need it, that we wouldn't quit on the practice just because we got jammed up. Amen? Amen. Thank you guys for your time.